1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Awesome. Good to be with you guys. Um, Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to just be in your word and continue in our journey through uh, the great little book of 1 Timothy. Um, As uh, we um, walk through uh, uh, just uh, a text that uh, might be controversial, I pray, Lord, that you would um, just make us um, open uh, to learn. Uh, that our our open minds would close on the solid truth of your word. And, uh, Lord, that we would just grow uh, to not only know you better, but love you more uh, by the end of our time together. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um, so if you didn't notice from the reading or from my prayer, we're going over some verses in Scripture uh, that could be a little controversial that most preachers would just skip over. Uh, but we are actually not going to do that today uh, because, you know, part of, part of my job and my job description is actually laid out in the Scriptures uh, uh, for, for all of us to read. And so uh, my job is to teach and preach what's called the whole counsel of God's Word. And that means no skipping verses, right? We're not allowed to do that. And so pastors who typically pass over verses like this do so because it touches on uh, a difficult and often misunderstood uh, subject. It mentions slavery uh, in this verse. And some people, especially uh, critics of the Christian faith, have looked at passages like this and said like, aha, you know, the Bible condones slavery. I knew it, right? This is why I don't like the Bible. This is why I don't like Christianity. It's, it's about slavery. And, and listen, I used to play that game too. I used to play that game, too, before I came to faith in Christ in college, uh, and I want to start our time in this text by actually sort of debunking some of the misconceptions and misperceptions that we have in these verses. I want you to know how sort of this game works so that when you're talking to uh, your non-Christian friends, your non-Christian family members and co-workers, uh, particularly the ones who are skeptics of the faith, uh, and I hope you are talking to them, right, uh, sharing the hope of Jesus with them, uh, but... I want you to know where it is that they're coming from, what it is that they're trying to do, how they might be possibly misunderstanding, and how the truth of what the scriptures are actually saying is so much better. And so uh, skeptics, uh, and when I say skeptics, I'm mostly speaking of critical skeptics. There's another kind of skeptic that's more like a curious skeptic that's like, hey, I want to learn more. Because I'm actually curious about this. I'm a little skeptical. I'm not sure about this, but, but I actually want to know. And then there's the critical skeptic uh, who it's like, hey, I don't know if I believe in this, and I don't want to know because I just don't want to have anything to do with Jesus or his people. Uh, and so when I say skeptics, what we're, we're, we, we see is that skeptics will often find a way to dispute the authority of the Bible. It's kind of the first thing that they go towards. And that's because if they can undermine the Bible and prove that the Bible is not God's revelation to us of himself, then then we don't have to read it, we don't have to believe it, we don't have to obey it, we can just choose another God for us to believe in. And if you eliminate, if you eliminate the Bible, then God is whoever that you decide you, you, you say he is. I think what's really ironic about that is um, these skeptics will often say that Christians are arrogant 
for saying that, that, that we know who the one true God is. But how is it that we're the arrogant ones for saying, like, I want to submit my life and my heart in obedience to God Almighty. And I want to build my life on the thousands of generations of understanding the faith. And how is it that, that that's the case? And the person that goes, God is who I say he is, is not the arrogant position, right? Uh, I digress on that point. But a common dispute that a lot of guys will, will come up with, uh, and I've heard this one, is they'll bring up to undermine the Bible's authority and goodness is they'll say things like, well, hey, doesn't the Bible teach slavery? Doesn't it endorse slavery? Doesn't it condone slavery? How can you trust the Bible when it condones slavery? And they'll use this as sort of like a gotcha statement, right? Like they're ace of spades, like checkmate, right? Like trying to answer this one. But in my experience, they don't really care if that statement is true or not. They just want to sort of defend their own worldview, set up their own set of blinders and say, look, I, 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 don't, I don't have to think about God. I don't have to answer to him. I can just do what I want, say what I want to say, go where I want to go, do what I want to do, and don't have to submit to anybody but myself. But when they do that, what's happening is you're taking a single verse out of its context and you're misunderstanding it. You're misapplying it. It's like ripping a single page out of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and seeing a page with uh, a song from Tom uh, Bombadil and going, what is this nonsense? Uh, like, Lord of the Rings is trash. It's so confusing, right? Uh, it's not fair. It's not fair to say that without knowing the whole story and the context and where that page fits in the story. And so here's, a, here's our big idea for this afternoon's text. The big idea is that honoring our superiors elevates the name of Christ and displays the beauty of the gospel both in the church and in the world. Honoring our superiors elevates the name of Christ and displays the beauty of the gospel both in the church and out in the world. And now to get there, we're going to look at our text and deal with the misperceptions re regarding Christianity and slavery. We're going to consider it within the context of history uh, and within the context of the scriptures. And so here's my first point for you. It's not that slavery. All right. When we talk, look at bond servants and slavery in this text, it's not that slave slavery. So let's read the text again. Super short text of uh, two verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The word for bondservants there is a Greek word, doulos, which literally means slave. It's a more accurate translation of the word. Most translations like the NASB and the CSB actually use the word slave, although the translation that we typically use, the ESV, does not. It says bondservant. But uh, what is being said in these verses is pretty straightforward, I think, when you just read it, just a plain reading of the scriptures. It says that if you're a slave, you should honor your master. Now, what are we to make of this? When we see the word slave and master, that very understandably triggers something in us, doesn't it? It's because what we, when we hear those words, we're hearing them as people who are living less than a couple hundred years after the transatlantic slave trade. 
And the picture that comes to mind for us is this, that shameful, dark era of our nation's history. We think about what we learned, just the horror that we learned in, in history class growing up. Maybe you're thinking of like Kunta Kinte from that, that, that uh, Roots movie or, or that 12 Years a Slave movie that came out about a decade ago. That's a different kind of slavery altogether. That's not the kind of slavery that Paul's talking about in this context. When we do Bible interpretation, we talk about the difference between eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis is when you take your own understanding of things and you sort of lead it, you sort of lead that, your understanding into the text. Exegesis is when you draw out what's actually there in the meaning of the text. And so the slavery that we picture in our minds, when we hear that word slave and master, this picture that comes to mind actually has its roots in European colonialism, where African natives were kidnapped and abducted. They were loaded onto ships to work overseas, where they were oppressed, abused, mistreated, beaten, horrible, wicked, despicable. Started in the 1500s in Europe, Eventually, uh, towards the end of it, like the British got involved, they were against it at first because they, they saw it, it uh, Great Britain was mostly Protestant, and they saw this as, uh, as, as there was a queen that even said, like, no, we're not going to get involved in the slave trade. That's a Catholic thing, right? And so they, but then what they would do, the Brits, is they would hire uh, the Irish, because most of the lower class were Irish, uh, to, to work down uh, in the Caribbean to work the sugar fields for all their, their tea. Um, but uh, I don't know if you know this. Uh, I know a couple of you have an Irish background, right? I'm looking at you in the back row there. Uh, but uh, the Irish are not built for the equator, right? Uh, those guys need like SPF 95 sunscreen, uh, which uh, didn't, uh, doesn't exist now, and it definitely didn't back then. And so, but what ended up happening is slowly, the Brits started to purchase slaves for their sugar fields. They, they realized, like, this is more uh, economically advantageous to us. And so once... They, they, they started uh, uh, buying and trading slaves, putting them in the sugar fields. And once they started to colonize the Americas, the New World, as they called it, they built that New World. They built America uh, on the backs of these slaves. And the slave trade became a booming industry in uh, the New World. That practice continued in the south uh, of the United States, where cotton and tobacco was grown. And slave trade, as we said, is just a shameful mark on our nation's history. Now, this type of slavery, the one that comes to our minds when we hear that word, is what's called chattel slavery. And chattel slavery is race-based. It's often skin-based, uh, where the slave becomes the property of their master. They have no legal rights, uh, and, and they, get, they get owned as property uh, uh, until the day they die often. And that type of slavery is, again, wicked. It's a despicable disgrace to, to all human civilizations. Now, that is not the slave-master relationship that is spoken of here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the context is the ancient Near East, the first century Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire at the time, uh, in, in the Roman Empire, slavery looked a lot different. It was not racial. It was not based on skin color. It was not even based on social, on social classes like slaves and their system could actually own other slaves. It was a lot different. 
They could have jobs. They could even have good jobs. They were often teachers and artisans and business owners. You could hold public office. You can get involved in governments. You were not kidnapped. You were not stolen. Usually what happened is you would volunteer yourself into this kind of slavery to gain a better life for yourself and your family, uh, a better life than you couldn't possibly on your own. As a matter of fact, that the Roman Empire around that time, about a third of the population were slaves. That includes in Ephesus, where, this, uh, where, where uh, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, the church in Ephesus. That region of Ephesus, about a third of the people there uh, were slaves. Uh, about 60 million people in the entire empire were slaves of some sort. So Roman slavery, as described in this text, is deeply embedded into the structure of the world at the time. And so it's not strange for Paul to talk about the slave-master relationship here. It actually would be weird if he didn't address it because of how commonplace and ubiquitous it was. And so when we ask that question, does the Bible condone slavery, knowing what comes to mind when we think of that world, that word in the 21st century, the answer is no. No, slavery was never part of God's plan. This form of slavery just happened to exist in the structures of fallen society at the time. And again, it would be weird for Paul to pretend that slaves didn't exist in the Roman world. And so he addresses the slave-master relationship right here. It might actually be good for you to know that elsewhere. He does say that even this sort of slavery arrangement should be abolished altogether uh, in his letter to Philemon, who was a, a, a slave owner. Uh, in fact, in 1 Timothy, at the beginning of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 10, Paul is talking about uh, a, a number of different kinds of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here's what he says in verse 10. He says, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And that word enslavers literally means a man-stealer. Man-stealer. Someone who kidnaps and takes people as property to be sold or used and owned forever. Also, it's worth noting that in Exodus 21, you might have picked up on this when you're, if you're going through our reading plan this year, but in Exodus chapter 21, there's a law that if you kidnap someone to use them as your property or to sell them, then you should actually be put to death. You should be executed. And so this whole idea that the Bible is okay and actually encourages and condones Chattel slavery is a weak argument. Now that we've established that this is not your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's slavery, Paul is saying, slaves honor your own masters. And this is a continuation of the entire previous chapter, chapter 5, on this, this topic of honor. And Paul is going through all these different people groups and the way that honor looks in them because we, we, we have, like, human societies tend to have an aversion to honor, to properly honoring one another. I remember when I was in high school, um, one of my, uh, I was working at this uh, smoothie shop in Rancho Santa Margarita called Beluca Juice. If you grew up in RSM, maybe you remember that, right? Um, it was it was amazing, right? We made the best smoothies on this side of the Mississippi. But um, uh, the, we, uh, uh, one of my coworkers there, um, would always bring these books uh, to 
uh, to her work shift. She was like obsessed with them. She tried to talk to me about them. And, um, and I was like, these books sound really lame. Um, it was the Twilight series, right? And so she's like talking to me about Twilight, and then I start realizing and reading that this is like a cultural phenomenon, right? Like these books are coming out, these movies start to come out, um, and she's talking to me about this like uh, this this vampire character and how like it's so romantic and all this other stuff. And I'm thinking like like once the movie posters and trailers started coming out, I'm like, that's what this guy looks like, right? Like like the main girl's like into this vampire, like that's what he looks like. I mean, he 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 kind of he kind of looks weak. He kind of looks like a nerd, right? Looks like a pushover. And then there's like this other guy who's like a werewolf, and he's got like like dark skin, and he's like really buff. He's kind of looked like me at the time, you know. And so like. <laughs> I'm like, how come, how come she's not into that guy? And so, uh, and so I actually asked her, I was like, what's the obsession uh, with this uh, Edward vampire guy? And, and he was like, or she, she was like, you know, like, it's, it's just like, he, he, not, he loves her so much. And like, he's always out to protect her. And he never touches her. Like, he, he never crosses the line. He never dishonors her. He never, uh, and that, and she's like, and, and she made this comment. She's like, how rare is that? Like in our day, in our culture. And it made me think about how she's right. Um, men don't often, often honor women appropriately. We don't honor one another appropriately. We have an honor problem we always have throughout human societies. And so Paul is speaking to Timothy about what Christian honor looks like in the context of a local church. He addressed this in the beginning of, of chapter 5 when he talks about church members should honor one another as family. He talks about how we honor the widows and the disenfranchised. He later talks about how you should honor elders, the leaders in the church. And here, at the beginning of chapter 6, uh, he talks about honoring masters. Now, by way of application, I think the closest equivalent for us uh, in our day and age is, is honoring like your boss or your supervisor, your superior. All right? And so when we talk about honoring here, the master, that's what we're talking about, honoring your superiors. And so this brings us to point number two. You should honor your non-Christian superiors to win them over. Honor your non-Christian superiors to win them over. Look at verse one again. Paul says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. You see, Paul is concerned about the name of God and the teaching of God. So when you go to work, the name of God should be on display through you. When you go to work, the teaching of Scripture should be on display through you if you're a Christian. When Paul tells these slaves to regard their own masters worthy of honor for the sake of God's name and God's truth, what he's doing is he's calling all of us. He's inviting all of us in our jobs to do the things that we do in a way that shows the world that our God, he's great. He's worthy. And he's worth knowing and following if you don't know him yet. Man, what higher stake is there than this in our work? 
We think the highest stake in our jobs and doing our jobs is whether or not we get the paycheck we want. No, for the Christian, the higher stake is that the very honor and name of God himself in the world that he created, including the places we live and work, are at stake in how we work alongside unbelievers. And it's worth pointing out that that honor, the way he's describing it, is, is an action. It's not a feeling. All right? It has to do with the way that you treat someone, not just with your words, but with how you work, too. And so if you have an unbelieving supervisor, this can be a challenge, right? But you need to honor them with your work ethic. You need to honor them with how you talk to them, speak to them, speak about them with the way that you respect them. Maybe if you're, if you're a student and you have an unbelieving uh, professor saying things you don't agree with, you should treat them with honor regardless. You see, the way that you as a Christian behave yourself on the job is a major part of your testimony. And this was an important issue for slaves in the early church because the Romans, they were starting to get suspicious whenever people started to worship some other new god. Cicero, uh, in history, he wrote about this at the time. He wrote how uh, that uh, slaves who dabbled in foreign religions would often be the most horrible workers. They were the laziest. They were the most disengaged as workers. And so if Christian slaves started to disrespect and dishonor their employers, their master, then the Roman suspicions would be confirmed. And that would only bring dishonor to the slaves and bondservants themselves, but to the name of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. So what does it look like to honor your superior? This means you don't just do the minimum work necessary to avoid getting, getting booted getting fired or let go. It means that you're willing to work hard, even if your supervisor's not around to watch you work hard. It means you're not daydreaming when you, when you work or letting yourself get distracted easily. What, what, what if you're unemployed or, or let's say like you're a stay-at-home mom? Then maybe a good question uh, to ask in order to apply this is, is how is it that you steward your time? Are you binging Netflix all day or scrolling on Instagram or TikTok? Or are you investing good into the people around you for the sake of God's name, for the sake of God's teaching? I used to serve in college ministry uh, for a large church in the area, and uh, this was like about 20 years ago, and, and uh, at that time, that ministry did, did a really bad job at training young people uh, how to be... Uh, wholehearted disciples of Jesus Christ, on how to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. Their emphasis was on relationships, which isn't bad, uh, and it was on emotionalism, you know, just kind of feeling things emotionally, which again isn't necessarily bad, um, but that was it, right? They didn't, these, this group of students, and it was a popular college ministry in the area, this group of students, they didn't know how to integrate their faith into their work. And so they were, what some would say, so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly good. But C.S. Lewis, he talks about that saying. 
he says that it's all kinds of silly because if you're truly heavenly minded, then you will be of most earthly good. And he points out that a lot of people throughout history, the apostles who started the first churches, who were the first church planters, the early church fathers, the reformers around the time of the Reformation, the abolitionists who got slavery abolished in Europe and then here in the States. He says all of them were motivated by their thoughts of heaven, by their thoughts of the kingdom, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to say, no, this world is not my home. My home is the world that God is going to renew. He's going to bring his kingdom down here on earth. That is my home. And because in that home, there are no slaves, we want to see slavery abolished here because in that home, People are worshiping and loving Christ. We want to plant churches here because in, in that home, in that future, uh, truth and goodness and beauty is, is encouraged and, and, and upheld. Uh, we want to fight corruption and false teaching in our churches like they did at the Reformation. If you are truly heavenly minded, then you will actually be of most earthly good. And why is that? It's because those whose citizenship is in heaven, we have a new motive for our work. We don't work ultimately for ourselves. We don't work ultimately for our pay. We don't work ultimately for our comfort, as good and wonderful as all those things can be in their right, proper context. Why we tip, our primary reason that we work is we work as if we're serving the Lord. Colossians 3 puts it this way in verse 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see what it says there in those, those two verses? It says that our work doesn't have to be tied to the amount of reward or appreciation that we get from our human masters. No, we have an indescribable, priceless, immeasurable reward in Christ, secured, coming to us in the future. When we have this perspective, you get to see that no, it's not that you have to work, but that's you, you get to work. And you get to understand that ministry isn't just what the guy from behind the pulpit does or the people up on the stage. Ministry is what we do every day when we show up for work. To love God and love neighbor. Contribute to human flourishing. Be a witness to our coworkers and even our employers. Tim Keller puts it this way on his great little book on the doctrine of vocation. It's actually not little. I don't know why I said that. But um, Tim Keller says this. He says, Christians, you see, have been set free to enjoy working. If we begin to work as if we were serving the Lord, we will be freed from both overwork and underwork. Neither the prospect of money and acclaim nor the lack of it will be our controlling consideration. Work will be primarily a way to please God by doing his work in the world for his name's sake. 
Are you committed to being a witness in the workplace? Are you praying for God to open doors with the non-Christians around you at work? Your coworkers might not be interested in your Christian faith, and they might even laugh about it behind your back. But when hard things come knocking on their door, who is it that they contact for counsel? Who is it that they look to and lean on for comfort? It's often going to be you. If the Holy Spirit awakens their hearts to their need for Jesus, who will they go to for those words of life? They'll turn to the ones who loved them with the love of Christ and who honored them, honored them as worthy of salvation. This leads us now to our third point. This is our last point. You honor your Christian superiors because they're family. So you honor your non-Christian superiors in order to win them over, but you honor your Christian superiors because they're family. And we just see this right in the whole of verse 2, which says that those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. You see, apparently some slaves were starting to disrespect their masters. That's why Paul is addressing this. They started to take advantage of some of their masters because their masters were, were other Christians. They were brothers in Christ. It's kind of like how your, your siblings will sometimes treat you worse uh, than they do their friends, right? I'd glance over at my sister, but she's not in the room right now. <coughs> you can tell her about that one. Um, just kidding. <coughs> some Christians, <coughs> some Christians will take advantage of their Christian bosses. They won't treat their job like a real job. They'll expect special favors. Or maybe they'll take liberties that they would never take in a secular sort of work environment. But look, being a brother or sister in Christ to your boss, that doesn't, that doesn't free you from obligations to serve and work to the best of your ability. I was reading an old devotional the other day, and I ran across a story of um, this Presbyterian minister by the name of Richard Halverson. Um, He was a chaplain of the U.S. Senate from the 80s into the mid-90s. And uh, in this story about Richard Halverson, um, it talks about his relationship with one of his friends who owned a a series of car dealerships in the the Washington, D.C. area. And the cool thing is that this guy, this this car dealership owner, he wanted to be a witness to Christ all over the D.C. area. He wanted to be a witness to Christ to all the customers that came in. The problem is he had a horrible reputation as a bad businessman. He didn't honor his warranties. He would often embellish on the condition of his used cars. Um, And one day... This guy, this car dealer guy, um, goes up to Halverson and says, hey, wouldn't, wouldn't this be a great idea Like, to, if I handed out New Testament tracts at all our location, if I had all our managers handing out New Testament tracts at our locations, and, and if people already have the Bible, if they already know Christ, then we'll, we'll give them you know, like one of the best-selling devotionals. To which Halverson replied, hey, look, 
brother, that's a, that's a great idea. But you know what would be an even better idea? Treating your customers right. Be an outstanding businessman and a man of character. Stand behind your products and don't sell junk to your customers. You see, this is, this is what Paul's getting at when he says, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. In other words, knowing that your brother and sister in Christ, that your boss is your brother and sister in Christ, should actually be a motivator for your hard work. That should actually serve as a motivator for you to honor them. You should want to benefit other believers in your life. You should want to honor your brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, your brothers and sisters in Christ are going to be family for you far longer than for many of us, even our, your, your blood family. Here's the basic, the basic principle here is that often the greatest barriers to our gospel witness to the people around us is how we conduct ourselves before them. Our lives are either going to lift up the truth about Jesus or undermine it. By the way that we work, by the way that we serve, by the way that we honor, will either cause people to say, you know what? That person really believes in this Jesus stuff. They really believe in this, and you can tell by the way that she lives her life. It actually makes the whole thing seem more attractive and credible to me. Or, or they'll say, you know, I, I don't think I would ever want to believe what that person says they believe, because I know how that guy lives his life. Paul says, to honor the superiors you serve under, to do good work for them, and that you can honor God's name by doing so. Let me ask a final question as we sort of land the plane here. Do you honor Jesus? Do you honor Jesus? your maker, your savior, your redeemer and friend? Do you honor Jesus? Because if you are honoring Jesus, then you will honor those you work around. You will honor those you work under. Jesus is the only one who is worthy of the supreme, ultimate, utmost honor. Yet he made himself a slave, a servant of many. Mark 6 tells us that when he showed up to his own hometown, nobody honored him there. The one who is the king of kings and lord of lords, who ruled sovereignly over all things, he became a humble servant to all in our sin. And now, 
Now, Paul says at the end of 1 Timothy, towards the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says that he, Jesus, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal forever dominion. Do you honor Jesus? Let's be a people who honor him, who honor the king of the cross. He's the king who willingly died in our place and for our sins to serve us. He died for our sins, for those sins where we have dishonored God and for those sins where we've dishonored people. And he rose from the grave in all power and glory and honor, and he's coming back to fully make his honor known. And so while we wait, we wait for that day where we'll bow our knees in honor to Jesus when we see him return. Let us be a people who, as we wait, honor him on this earth and honor him with our work, the honor that is due his name. And let us honor others, especially those in the household of God. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.